In Acts chapter 23, we're going to read verses 1 through 9. Paul pleads his cause before this council, the Sanhedrin, and there's great dissension. And Paul, earnestly beholding the council, in verse 1, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded them that stood by him to smite him on the mouth. Then said Paul unto him, God shall smite thee, thou whited wall, for sittest thou to judge me after the law, and commandest me to be smitten contrary to the law? And they that stood by said, Revilest thou God's high priest? Then said Paul, I wist not, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, Thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. But when Paul perceived that the one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Of the hope and resurrection of the dead I am called in question. And when he had said so, there arose a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the multitude was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees confessed both. And there arose a great cry, and the scribes that were of the Pharisees' part rose, and strove, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel hath spoken to him, let us not fight against God. So, as we move forward here, what we are learning here is the most important thing you'll ever probably learn in your life. That's not my opinion, but it's what Paul preached, so I can say that confidently, and you look throughout all of his writings, it's very important to notice that the, that the teaching and the truth of a resurrection is everything in the world to us. The word resurrection bears a very heavy weight, and it's not something to trifle with and to take lightly. And as we study this together, we really need to leave all of our thoughts aside and we need to concentrate very fully on what Paul's trying to say here because this is all applies to everyone in this whole world that's ever going to die. What happens next? And what do we have as an example and what do we know? We see there, there was another Ananias we were talking about. Ananias, who was the one that led Paul, Saul, and I'd like to bring him into this and showed the difference between the Ananias of the Christian church and this wicked Ananias who, I don't think too many of us realize who this Ananias in Scripture is was talking to, the one that said that he wanted to smite Paul. Certainly not the one that helped Paul. This Ananias that we were looking back in Acts chapter 9 is one who loved Saul, who loved Jesus Christ. He's the one that when Paul regained his sight, he was the first one that Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul, he had his eyes focused on this Ananias. It was this Ananias that held his hand. It was the one that encouraged him, the very Ananias that was very apprehensive of, of helping Saul of Tarsus because he was public enemy number one. Christ had chosen Ananias in, in Acts chapter 9 for this incredible journey with Paul. And he had shaped and he had helped mold this great missionary and encouraged him in Christ. If Ananias could treat this public enemy number one and welcome him into the church with such faith in Christ, we must treat each other with love. Ananias was unifying the church, even with the Saul, so must we. 
And we can even see here amongst the Jews, there was so much dissension. This is what destroys churches, and this is what destroys them down through the ages. Saul will bear, his, will bear names in front of kings, councils, dignitaries, as we're reading here. He lamented the rest of his life about the persecuted church because he was part of it. But we see here in verse 1, he said he had done all things in good conscience. What would that have meant? What would that have meant? Him going after Christian people, we have prayer requests here on Wednesday night for the persecuted church. What is it that Paul says that he persecuted Christians in good conscience? That's what he was talking about. If you study this, he was talking about why did he mean good conscience? Well, he preached in synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. And we owe a lot to the Apostle Paul, whose name was Saul, because of his missionary journeys. We see him being mentioned by pilgrims and Puritans, uh, the Reformers, all down through the ages. And we see that there are over, there are still those that read Paul's 60% of the New Testament, his writings, over 2.5 million estimated people a year still to this day read his writings. We see the Apostle Paul's letters, the man who was breathing fire and hissings, wreaking hackle in the church, and he goes on to write Romans chapter 1, verses 15 to 18. Can someone look that up and read that, please? Romans 1, 15 to 18. I love these words. I think they're wonderful. Pastor Don Britton has been preaching them now for well over a year. He's been in Romans 1, and he went, over, went through this. But look at the encouragement that Paul leads after what had happened to him. Romans 1, 15 to 18. Yes, if you, if you have it. Hold on a second. I'm sorry. No, Romans 1, is that verse 15? Yeah, 15 to 18. That's it. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He's standing in front of dignitaries. He's standing in front of one of the most evil high priests that was ever involved in Jewish history. This Ananias was a real hard case. And he stands in front of them and he gives the gospel and he's, and he's giving a wonderful summary of what he is about to go into. And what he's about to go into actually puts a knife, a wedge, right between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And the Pharisees actually start showing a little compassion for Paul. I'd like to give a summary here on Paul. And this is a, a wonderful quote regarding Saul of Tarsus, who becomes Paul, whose name becomes in the Greek Paul. Luke setteth down in this place a noble history, and a history full well worthy to be remembered concerning the conversion of Paul. After what sort the Lord did not only bring him under and make him subject to his commandment when he raged like an untamed beast, but also how he made him another and a new man. But because Luke setteth down all things in order as in a famous work of God, it shall be more convenient to follow his text that all may come in order whatsoever is worth than the noting. When as he saith that he breathed out threatenings and slaughter as yet 
his meaning is that after that his hands were once imbued, imbued with innocent blood, he proceeded in like cruelty and was always a furious and bloody enemy to the church. After that, he had once made that entrance, um, whereof mentioned in, mating, in, in the death of Stephen, for which cause it was the more incredible he could be so suddenly tamed. And whereas such a cruel wolf was not only turned into a sheep, but that also put on the nature of a shepherd, the wonderful hand of God did show itself therein manifestly. That is the power that our Lord can take a man like this and convert him. I have once someone, someone once told me many years ago, and I'll never forget this, that people cannot change. Well, I'm here to tell you that if that's the truth, if that is the case, then Christ is handcuffed. That He can only do so much. You, we can change, and we can change for the better. And every day of our lives, we must. We have an obligation to the Lord to do that. And we all have very complex, complicated issues and trials every day in our lives. And what we do with them is incredibly, it's incredibly guarded. It's providentially worked through our Lord Jesus Christ. And if we trust in Him, He will reveal to us the blessings in our trials. Paul knew this very well. He knew that his trials now, where before he was more of a worry wart. He was incredibly... He was incredibly filled with anxious, anxious, and an anxious demeanor and anxiety when he was following the course of a Pharisee and he was doing these horrible things, but he thought that he was doing it in good conscience. And that brings up a very big question going into these verses here. Going into these verses, Paul is quite concerned before the diversified. Now, we are now in chapter 23 of Acts, so we are now going into the commentary and into the lesson here. So, Hang on. I mean, uh, stay tuned. This is very, I think this is incredible. Paul is quite concerned before the diversified multitude to establish his integrity and embolden his cause before Christ, as did Stephen. Stephen, saw, he saw that shining light of our Lord's refulgent glory, and Paul saw it on the road to Damascus. And he will, he will mollify or quell these nettled, annoyed minds that he might be heard to defend his righteous stand. And the Lord gives him the platform here. And he's speaking still. So the question is, where does Paul get this integrity? And where does he have good conscience with the moral law persecuting Christians? And then he comes back and he said he did those things in good conscience, but now does these things in good conscience. How could he actually say that? And can we understand what gave him the encouragement and the absolute uh, calling of God to be able to say that? Well, we're going to see that here. He had integrity. What is it? What is integrity? Well, I can tell you what it isn't. A lot of what we see in mainstream today. We don't see a whole lot of integrity today. Merriam-Webster's Dictionary defines integrity as firm adherence to a code of especially moral or artistic values. It's incorruptibility. Some synonyms that go along with integrity are character, decency, goodness, honesty, morality, probity, rectitude, righteousness, right, righteousness, rightness, uprightness, virtue, and virtuousness. These are all wonderful cousins, first cousins of the word integrity. And it's something that as we live in our lives, we really need to show it. And I believe, one, if you want to have a Hall of Fame, which you see in Hebrews 11, one of the most integrous men you see in Scripture is Job. I think that he, I think that he was. 
And I think that he did a wonderful job considering what he had been through. And you know what? I also have learned in my reading and studying Job to have far more respect and more love for his wife. Because what that woman had been through, although it was hard and she had been discouraging, she stayed with him and it was a very difficult time. When you lose ten children in one shot in one day, that would put anybody over the edge. And so you talk about integrity. I think he, as a husband, and, a wife, and his wife both had incredible integrity. I do. And she, showed some, she may have shown some, some negative parts, but in my opinion, I believe it was temporary and I believe the Lord worked them through it wonderfully. Lisey. Right. 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 The Lord can prune things out of our lives to strengthen us. He can he can take things, he can take people, he can take situations, and the only way we're ever going to understand that is to have the work of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God directing us and showing that and encouraging us. If we don't have that, go ahead. Right. Right. Amen. Yeah. He did. Right? And the whole, you read the whole book of Job, it almost seemed impossible, didn't it? I mean, he's to the point where he has boils, he has sores all over his body, his wife is upset, his friends are upset. And the only reason we can look at it with any hope and encouragement is we can see the end game. And the whole end game was he trusted. He said, my Redeemer liveth. And that was the hinge point. Thank you, Lisey. That was a very wonderful... Uh, statement to bring up. Job chapter 2, verse 3, and the Lord, or Job 1, 3, and the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil, and still he holdeth fast his integrity, although thou movest me against him to destroy him without cause. Here the Lord is going to defend Job. But he's going to allow these things to happen for a very specific reason. We can't always answer the questions why we have things happen to us. And there are hard things that can come our way. But when they come, we know that the Lord is there. Paul here exhibits the attributes of a Christian of apologia, a defense for the cause of the gospel. He, we see that he is earnest, he's reverent to the reprobate counsel and careful of his conscience. And quorum Deo... And that phrase means before the face of God. He knows that he's before the face of God and he's more concerned about that than being before the face of the Roman Empire and the Sanhedrin. He says good conscience. Let's talk about that a minute. 
We see in good conscience, in the first three verses, we see Paul talks about good conscience. And then when he tries to speak with reverence, this high priest who is supposed to show moral, moral uh, uh, courage, he's supposed to show a morality that defines him as a Jew, as a good person, this is what they thought. He turns around in front of everyone and says, strike him. Smite him in the face because Paul is speaking very reverently. He says in good conscience. He goes, and Paul earnestly beholding the council said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience. What he means in all good conscience is that we have to be able to study this and understand that he is not saying that he was perfect, that he was doing everything right. He was saying that he in his heart thought even in the worst of times that he was doing what was right, predicated on what God wanted. Now that brings up a very massive question for this Bible study here. The council was the Sanhedrin set up by the Jewish rulers, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Anybody remember what the big difference between the Sadducees and the Pharisees is? Even to this day, it's the same thing. At least, right. They don't, that's the first thing they don't believe in. Matthew. They were, they were, they were more of a kind of an upper echelon, if you want to put it like that. They didn't believe in angels. Sadducees did not believe in angels, physical presence of them. Basically, they thought they were like these like ghost apparitions, like the, all these weird things we see on television. You don't see angels revered as Christ's servants working for the Lord and not accepting worship when you see angels out in the public. You see statues of them. You see these apparitions and all these weird things. Basically, they did not believe in real angels. They didn't believe in doctrine. They didn't believe in anything past the Pentateuch, and they barely believed in that. But why? What was the big thing? Why would the Pharisees, who were so against the Sadducees, why would they be in such league together when they would come up against Christ and against Paul? Why would they do that? Well, I can tell you one of the reasons. Go ahead, Lisey, did you have that? Exactly. Right. Right. That's a, you know, I was listening to a message. It actually, it, it focused right on this passage. And the, 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 the key word was orthodoxy. Whenever you have true orthodoxy, you will always stand alone. True orthodoxy is the teaching and the doctrines of the truth of Christ. That's true orthodoxy. When you have that, you're going to see others in religion that even though they disagree on things, will have no problem rising up against you because they will say you're inclusive, you're homophobic. They'll, they'll say that you're some kind of a freak and all because you stand on the truth. But they'll stand together, and it's never failed in Scripture. Many times did wicked nations get together to come to try to destroy the Israelites the Assyrians, the Philistines, the Hittites, the Amorites, all of them, many times they work together. And just like Lisi said, which is extremely true and perfect, Pilate and Herod, if you read about Herod the Tetrarch, they hated each other. Caesar despised all of the Herods. But when it came to destroying Christ, they could stand right there together. And this is what's happening here. The Sadducees and the Pharisees are together. Good conscience. Paul, he has... These, uh, the, these, uh, these attributes, and he talks about good conscience. The council was the Sanhedrin set up by the Jewish rulers, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Paul approached them in good conscience before God. Uh, he, he says 
that I approach all things in good conscience. And these, are, these verses we're reading are incredibly important. And he says he had done things in good conscience and lived in all good conscience before God. First of all, remember when Stephen was reviled against and brought before this council, that they would have thought that they had faced him down. This council thought that they would have faced him down and beat him down, but Stephen steadfastly looked toward heaven, saw the glory of the Lord, and he even prayed for them. And Paul is carrying the same reverence here. Ezekiel 3.8 tells us, Behold, I have made thy face strong against their faces. And now here Paul is, really an extension of this prophecy, and thy forehead strong against their foreheads. As an adamant harder than flint have I made thy forehead. Fear them not, neither be dismayed at their looks, though they be a rebellious house. And basically, Ezekiel is saying, the Lord is teaching him, don't fear these people, don't fear those that will rise up against you. Here, conscience. Conscience in mankind is the soul's warning system, which allows human beings to contemplate their motives and actions and make moral evaluations of what is right and what's wrong. Our consciences must be revered with hallowed sanctity and that, that is nurtured by the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. That's a clear conscience. A good conscience that is predicated on following the direction of the Holy Spirit through the writing, through the reading, and through the studying of Scripture is always a good conscience. And it has what's called true joy in it. Everyone has consciences. That is, something, that, that, that is something alone, that what the conscience does to our soul and causes us to go out on the street and not just take a club and beat somebody in the head when they look at us the wrong way. That's our conscience. And there are people that have the grace that are, that are, that are, that are unsaved people that also have that conscience. But one thing we remember that Jeremiah and Paul said regarding our consciences is that that is written upon them. It is in them. And so Paul's trying to teach this here. But when he says, I did all things in good conscience, what can we, what can we, um, uh, what can we learn from that? 2 Corinthians 1.12. Dave, can you look that up, please? Um, Hebrews 9.14. How about Greg? Can you look that up? Hebrews 9.14 and 15. 2 Corinthians 1.12. And then, Greg, if you could do Hebrews 9, 14, and 15. Amen. Greg, if you have Hebrews 9, 14, thank you. We learn here that this conscience, if it's going to be alive, it's going to be predicated on an eternal spirit, not with fleshly wisdom, 
Not as Paul says, going, to, going into 1 Corinthians 1 further down, not with the wisdom of this world. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the wisdom of this world? He says it's all bankrupt. It's with the, it's with the, 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 the direction of the Holy Spirit. It's alive. This is a wisdom, and this is an alive conscience. Sadly, there are many dead consciences out there. He, Hebrews 10.22. Can Charlie, could you look that up, please? Hebrews 10.22 and 23. Hebrews 10, 22 and 23. We look about how a true assurance that is in our heart we see in these verses here. And we once had an evil conscience. Do we still have that? That's a question for Christians. Go ahead, Charlie. Be, be patient. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, Greg. Look at what's going on here. We be patient. We want everything at once because we are on a clock. And we know that that clock is ticking. Oh, did I watch a podcast the other night. It was live. And I enjoyed it every, every minute that I got to watch. I only got to see about 25 minutes of it because I missed some of it. Steve Lawson was on live and they were asking questions from Instagram and Facebook and all, questions about his ministry. And he one of the questions was, where do you go now? He's in his early 70s. He, he looks great. You could see he's aged. But he says, I, his first words were, I don't want to retire. I want to refire. And he says, I want to get stronger every day. I want to learn more about the gospel. I want to preach harder. He says, because I know my days are numbered and one day I'm probably going to wind up in a bed. I won't be able to move. I'm going to be dying. And that, that ministry will be prayer. But between now and then, I want to press into heaven. I want to kick. I want to, I, I want to press. I want to punch my way in. I want to run my way in but I want to do this for the rest of my life. I want to do this for the Lord. And he says, I know my days are numbered. He was saying that. And these were young girls. They were two young girls that asking these questions. They said, what is your favorite place to preach out of? And where would you have someone to start reading the Bible? If you were, they, have, they hadn't read scriptures and they want to read scripture, where would you have them start? And I got to admit, I was 100% stumped. Because I have listened to sermon after sermon after sermon after sermon from Steve Lawson from the book of Psalms. He talks about Psalm 1 and 2 being the pillars of all 150 chapters that they like form a big tower around them. He talks, and when he gets into it, he speaks about Romans, I mean, in, I'm sorry, in uh, Psalm 1 about how it's a messianic prophecy, and in Psalm 2, why did the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? And he talks about how everything that once was in the closet is now on Main Street, and he has preached for years, and he's loved the Psalms. But here's what he said. I would have them go. I, he said, I would like to speak to them personally first. And I thought that was very humble, because he would do that. 
He would definitely do that. He would take time out for anybody. He says, I would want them to go to the book of John. And then he did something that I love, because I'm very familiar. We're all very familiar with this. He was starting, he just starts the excitement in the man's face and the way that he glowed when he speaks about Scripture. It just recharged my batteries. <laughs> and he just loves it with a smile. And I'm sitting there listening as he goes, I just love the I am statements in the book of John. We've been studying them for years and going back to them. I am the true vine. I am the resurrection and the life. Did you hear that? I am the resurrection and the life. There's that word resurrection. I am the living water. I am the gate to the sheepfold. I am the door to the sheep. And I, I even was able to quote some, some that he forgot. I am he. I am that I am. I and my father are one. That's kind of an extension of that. But when we see all these things, they're very exciting. And here we understand Paul knew that his time was coming. But what we have trials, we want everything to happen all at once for ourselves. But remember, God is timeless. Our God that takes care of us has no clock. There's no sudden death in His existence. So when He makes choices, and sometimes they're not even ready for this world, sometimes the benefits of our trials, we won't even see them till we're out of this world. So it's my encouragement, make sure when you leave this world, you go to that world. And that's, by the, that's the direction of Christ. We see here that Paul is saying that he did all things in good conscience. Now, this Ananias we're looking at here, the second Ananias, was this Annas, the family of Caiaphas? Not at all. As bad as Annas was, this Ananias that we read about here in Acts chapter 23 was quite exponentially more brutal. He was one of Israel's cruelest and most corrupt, illegitimate high priests. His pro-Roman policies from antiquity alienated him from most Jewish people. And in A.D. 66, there was a revolt against Rome. And there was a very secretive murder where the Jews actually went after him and had him killed. That's how bad he was. There was a revolt in Rome. Ananias was murdered at the outset of this revolt. The fact that the order came so sharply from Ananias' mouth to violently smite or strike Paul shows the violent nation of the, the nature of his tyranny. And this would have been quite a violent, vicious blow. Where are we at right now? There is a new thing that's happening right here in these words that's quite different than from what we've already studied. I know some of this seems repetitive because the beating and the physical violent nature never stopped in Paul's, Paul's ministry. But what's, what has stepped up a notch here, which is actually a really bad thing, is Paul is now being delivered over from the Jewish council where those beatings were bad, but those beatings were nothing compared to the Roman beatings and the scourgings. If you remember the scourging that Christ took when he was, at, he was there at the hands of the Romans after he had already been beaten by the Jewish council, it was quite different. Because when you were beaten from a Roman legislation... They took out thongs, leather thongs, and they had metal shards that were attached to the ends of these thongs, and they did it to kill you. It would rip your back open so bad, your flesh was hanging out, and most people did not live through that. And if you did, the scars were supposed to be a message to send to other people, watch out for the Roman Empire. And so here, Paul, who had already just been beaten, is now about to get it again, and something incredible happens here. 
Paul flares up in anger at the request of the high priest. Now, if you go through the commentaries and you read this back and forth, you're going to get different opinions of whether Paul was right or wrong for crying out against this high priest. Now, you can see a little bit of remorse in in verse 5. I am all for what he did. And I think he was very reverent. He could have done a lot more and said a lot more that he knew to rip this high priest. He said, you're nothing but a whited wall. Where did we hear that before? Anybody remember that statement? Does that sound familiar? Amen. He says to him, you know, there's a lot of people in the world that you may not be afraid of. But there's one person outside of Christ himself that I would have never want to mess with. I would never want Paul the Apostle to have told me, God shall smite thee. I would never want that. He says, Then said Paul unto him, God shall smite thee, thou whitest wall, for sittest thou to judge me after the law, and commandest me to be smitten contrary to the law. He says, How dare you molest and you pervert the commandments of the Lord. How dare you take those commandments and you stretch them. How how dare you do that? And then completely openly defy them by taking a Roman Pharisee and without any trial threaten to smite him in front of his own people and in front of other people. He's in violation of his own law. And if he dies, then this Jew who's supposed to be so wonderfully connected to this has just broken the sixth commandment. He's already broken it because he's already trying to put it into effect. What does Christ say? He says if you even... If you, if you cry raka against your brother, you call them someday, you've already committed murder in your heart. You've already said you want to, you, you've already said that you want to kill them. And this, this, this high priest, he's in total violation of the law. As all, as all we would be if it wasn't for Christ. Here Paul flared up in anger at the request of the high priest to smite him. And there's three major admonitions that we can see here when Paul cries out against this wicked Ananias, who is the high priest that wants him to be, to be struck and to be hit hard. He says, number one, God shall smite thee. Remember how this prof- prophetic outcry from Paul is confirmed in the Old Testament by Solomon. Ecclesiastes 3 verse 7. Jerry, could you look that up please? Ecclesiastes 3.17. And uh, Brother Jim, could you look up Isaiah chapter 11, verse 4? And this is, a, this is a prophetic outcry of what the Lord will do to those that come after His people. If you have that, Ecclesiastes 3.17, Jerry, and then Jim will be Isaiah 11.4 again. Up till now, Paul was not subjected to Roman scourging. Now he is. And it was this close. Sure, go ahead. That's not a problem. It's Ecclesiastes 3.17, if you have that, Jerry. Yeah. 
As Jerry's looking that up, remember how Christ was scourged at his trial and how bad that was. That was a Roman scourging. He should have never survived that. And Paul, he knows this. And Paul, he cries out, you ready to go? Good job. Thanks, Jerry. Amen. God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every purpose. Jim, if you have Isaiah eleven four, please. He shall slay the wicked. And Paul is saying that here. He said, the Lord will smite thee for what you're doing against the Christian church. Up until now, Paul was not subjected to the Roman scourging, but Paul has been threatened by these, these executioner. He had been threatened by the Jewish council to be beaten. Jesus was scourged at his trial. Roman scourging would consist of leather thongs with which attached at the ends were these metal shards, and when a victim was beaten, most of the time they died. First thing Paul says is, God shall smite thee. The second admonition is, thou whited wall. Back in this era, many buildings were made of mud, mud wall with trash, dirt, and rubbish underneath, covered over with plaster, and then white, whitewashed. They were covered over with paint. So all the trash was covered over. And this is the same comparison effect with that of Christ as he compared the Pharisees to whited sepulchers. In Matthew twenty three twenty seven. He says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. And Paul's just basically calling Ananias, he's just basically calling him a liar. He said, you're basically covering all the dirt and the trash over with this white paint, basically, and you're pretending to be some high priest, but really you're in violation of your own law that you're, that you're supposed to be obeying. Then the third part, as we go into that, is he says the third admonition is contrary to the law. Paul says that he's contrary to the law. Paul continues to tell them God will smite them for perverting his law. And I think this is a very incredible statement coming up here. Always remember that when you have a resubmission of God's law from the hands of created men, there will usually be endless man-made laws because legislation cannot be satisfied with ten perfect commandments, which are not in any way ten recommendations. Remember, these are called commandments. <laughs> these are not up for our interpretation. There was an English writer, he was a lay theologian named Gilbert Keith Chesterton, who made a quote, If men will not be governed by the ten commandments, they shall be governed by 10,000 commandments. I mean, look at the books in our, in our, in our, in our, in our judicial system now. Look at the Obamacare in and of itself, which nobody hardly read. It was about this high. And law after law after law, because people just won't listen to, the, to, to 10 simple commandments that the Lord's given us. Well, we see how Ananias was in total conflict with the law, being opposed to Christ and to smite a fellow Jew and purpose to kill him. And that was totally against the law and in violation of the Sixth Commandment. There was no due process. There was no proper trial. There was nothing. He had no defense. Paul did but his own. And we see here, Paul, he gets kind of upset 
But then what happens in verse 5? Then said Paul, I wist not, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, Thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. Paul shows a little remorse here. He shows a little reverence. And he's saying, maybe I shouldn't have said that the way I said it. But one thing that this really could be, perhaps, I'm not saying this 100%, but you know, reading about this, Paul was suffering with bad eyesight. From a good part of the rest of the last half of his life, he had poor eyes. Maybe he didn't recognize him. Another thing is maybe Ananias didn't have the robes. He wasn't kind of in the garb that they're normally in, and he didn't recognize him, and he didn't realize that he was speaking to a high priest this way. Lisi. Right. 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 And that, and that bears a lot of weight because basically he's telling him, you're following everything but Christ. You're doing everything. You're trying to follow the law, but you can't follow it properly because you're not obeying Christ. That's a good point. It's a very, very good, good, a good point about that. When it says, but when Paul, in verse 6, but when Paul perceived that the one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out unto the council, men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee of the hope and resurrection of the dead. I am called in question, and there's the knife. He throws a wedge between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Remember what we spoke about in the beginning of the class, what the Sadducees did not believe in? They didn't believe in a resurrection. Pharisees did, and Paul knew that. He's nobody's dummy. Doctrinally and theologically, Pharisees and Sadducees were diametrically opposed. Paul knew they were at war with each other. It is like Christianity today. If anyone orthodox stands up and it's true, other evangelicals, false evangelicals, can, get, can band together. But if you stand on true orthodoxy and the truth of Scripture, you're going to have people coming up against you. It's kind of like that Promise Keepers movement years ago that brought together all these big-name Catholic and evangelical darlings of the cloth to promote a safe world. They had no problem getting everybody together. But it was the true, the true believers that knew that with Orthodox Christianity, they need to be very careful with that. When it comes to defending traditional worship and keeping the Bible as the central motif, motif of worship, many scatter. Paul knew that the most ancient stratagem of the motion was to divide and conquer. And Christ's whole truth claims rise and fall with the resurrection. That's so important. This word resurrection is so incredible to our Christian walk, our Christian life, and the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, which we hold so hallowed and so sacred and wonderful in our hearts, not so much to keep it inside and to keep it like confined, but to go out and share it with others. The Pharisees are now scratching their heads. The dissension becomes so riotous, it's now time to bring Paul back to the garrison. And all of a sudden, the Sadducees are now yelling against the Pharisees. We see a whole other riot brewing. And once Paul mentions the resurrection, we see, and there arose a great cry in verse 9, and the scribes that were of the Pharisees part rose and strove, saying, We find no evil in this man. But if a spirit or an angel hath spoken to him, let us not fight against God. Does anybody remember where we heard a Pharisee say something very similar to that? Yes. 
Good memory. It was Gamaliel. Remember, he said, we leave, if the Lord doesn't want this to happen, be very careful. He was very, he was, he was very correct in that. We got a few minutes left. Uh, this, there's one thing, and we'll finish. Can someone read 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 19? They're pretty short verses. It'll take a couple minutes. But this brings together Paul's, what was in his heart about the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll continue with this next week because this is so important, what Paul's trying to teach us here. Who has that? First Corinthians fifteen verses one through nineteen. Okay. Huh? First Corinthians chapter fifteen verses one through nineteen. Okay. So the whole, thank you, Matthew, the whole foundational principle here is if there's no resurrection, Paul says that our preaching is in total vain. He said it's for nothing. And that word resurrection is there for a reason. It's incredibly important that we understand that our resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, He set the bar, He literally went through it physically, proved that by His own power He could resurrect so He could show us that we will have a resurrection one day. And here, this is the dividing line between the Jewish council. This is incredible. The Sanhedrin, what happens here? What happens is it saves Paul's life. The word resurrection saves his life here. We'll finish with that this morning. Matthew, could you close us, please, with prayer? Thank you.